episode of the Keen on Yoga podcast is sponsored by Moments. It's a booking system we've been using for the last year, roughly speaking, and we really recommend it. It's a one-stop shop, really, and it integrates with Zoom and allows you to take payments via PayPal and Stripe. You can set up courses, trainings, retreats, keep an eye on your business with robust reporting. It even runs a staff payroll. So if you do run a studio, it will take care of teacher payments as well. Excellent team at Moments will help you set up, migrate from your other system and offer onboarding support. They're really hands-on at this. Once you've set up and are going, you will have time-saving automations, marketing and win-back campaigns to keep those students coming back. Moments literally takes care of the whole business side for you, so you're really free to take care of your creative side. Best of all, you've got that real-time support via phone, live chat and email. Moments is offering Keenan Yoga listeners and viewers a two-month free trial. Click on the link below or visit moments.com, that's moments.com, and book a demo. And if you quote Keen on Yoga to get your free trial, you'll get two months free. Now on to the episode. So today's guest at Keen on Yoga is Prashad Rangnikar. Um, welcome, Prashad, to Keen on Yoga. Thanks for Thank making you. time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you. Um, I suppose the obvious place to start is the usual place of not being an Ashtanga uh, yoga uh, teacher, um, would you like to give a little bit about your background and, and uh, your perspective on yoga and how you got into it and uh, and how you teach? Um, I I started with my yoga journey, as in I would say asana and pranayama journey, the physical mm. practice journey, at the age of nine, um, with a direct disciple of Kuvalayananda, mm. and. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, my sister and I had a school break for a couple of months. And uh, I don't know why, but my mother thought we should uh, study yoga. So she had us rec- uh, recruited in a yoga course <laughs> for one month. And we were the youngest. Yeah. And my sister and I, my sister was 13, I was nine. And uh, all others were 50 and above. So we were like the apple of the eye of the class and yeah, pampered. Yeah. So that yeah, was a yeah, good yeah. Uh, motivation for us. But that is when I really started understanding movement of the body and the breath. So the awareness of, uh, for awareness on the body and the breath started coming into my system since then. Mm. But I also to give credit to my family upbringing, you know, mm. like in India, people may not be actually doing physical yoga, but they, mm. they are born into, or they grow up with yogic principles. Yeah. Yeah. You still, you so still think now, in nowadays. that sense. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like, if you ask me, did your parents do yoga? I would say no. But if you ask me, did you, did my parents uh, follow yogic principles? I would say yes. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like um, I, I could say my mother was a quintessential karma yogi and my father was a typical jnana yogi, you know, always reflecting, always demolishing set ideas and notions. So somewhere uh, that upbringing, you know, then my mother uh, started teaching us Bhagavad Gita, chanting don't ask me why. <laughs> I asked my mother once and she said, it's part of our culture. Uh-huh. So good enough, you know, so, yeah. but at least the fundamentals started being uh, planted into us. Mm. And then as I grew up 15, 16, 16, when I was 16, I had a major illness. I was bedridden for uh, three and a half, four months. I had lost a lot of weight, so I had nowhere to go. And in I just selected a book out of my uh, family library and that was uh, a book on yoga, you know, a general mm. book on yoga, mm. not mm. physical yoga. But the first chapter I read was Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. I did not understand much, but it just fascinated me. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then gradually things 
went on and on. It's, it's how it's a continuous journey Then I met some of my teachers later in my life when I was in late twenties and early thirties. Then uh, I started going into silence. You know, I mauna or silence practice is one of my major uh, I, I practices. Think, um, yeah, yeah. Or I think we'll come to that in a second because I know mm-hmm. I know you okay. do these incredible these incredible uh, uh, retreats into silence for a number of months a year, which I think a lot of people yeah, find yeah. terrifying, if if not impossible. Um, I'm going to encourage my wife to do one actually. Um, <laughs> it should be fun at hard. Um, but uh, I want to I want to ask you. Um, about the early days, because you, yeah. you mentioned other things I've listened to of you talking that uh, yeah. you you started to get into physical culture. You became a personal trainer. Um, yes, I, I thought that I thought that was interesting, uh, and how that okay. relates to how that how that relates to your yoga experience. I also wanted to ask you yeah. about at a certain point. I, I recognize you you had a rebellion in, uh, to your parents' Absolutely. ideology Absolutely. ideologies, and uh, and and didn't want to say the prayers anymore. And, and, and how that kind of dovetailed into your yoga experience. So yeah, you maybe yeah. talk a little bit about, about how you yeah. started to kind of develop. See, it Adam, own, if you, uh, you'll have to prompt me like this because for in my head, my that's... spiritual development is very hazy. You know, I don't remember yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. That's good you, you are prompting yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the funny part is my father was a bodybuilder and a wrestler. Really? Not professionally, but he was a lawyer, but he was also an... Uh, he was into it. So my mother introduced me to the physical practice of yogasana and pranayama. And my father initiated me into, into bodybuilding at the age of 16 and 17. Huh. Um, so I got just, you know, before that, you know, bodybuilding was cool in India or the fitness things was cool in India. My father had already uh, taken me to the gym and instructed me on how to work out and all all that I just want to point out here from the yogic perspective I remember we never used to wear shoes in our gym gym. because there was a Hanuman temple in the gym okay right you dropped a dumbbell in your foot or something no 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 (laughs) no but that was no (laughs) devotion is uh, devotion is more important than dropping yeah, breaking, your... breaking your foot or anything. What, I mean, yeah. And... I, maybe I could just pause for a second and ask you that, yeah. that, um, yeah. a question, actually, because as I understand it, um, the bodybuilding aspect has always been very similar, you know, very kind of synonymous in a way or closely related to the asana, right? I mean, we look at uh, uh, Ier in the Mysore yeah. Palace next door to Krishnamacharya. Yes. Um, yes. Go, Gose, the, uh, the uh, and the brother of... Uh, that uh, Bikram, you know, yes. famous bodybuilder. So th- there's been some absolutely, yeah, yeah. Even uh, even before last hundred years, like the Surya Namaskar thing, mm. right? Mm. Like I remember, uh, my father did not know much about Surya Namaskar as we do them, but he insisted when he was training me in the first couple of months in the gym, he insisted that I do hundred namaskars, right? before I touch a dumbbell. So what he meant was, uh, it was the, as yeah. nowadays I heard this word, Hindu push-up. Yes, yes. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, he, he used the term Namaskar because right. he was a wrestler and he used to go to these uh, Indian wrestling schools. Mm. And the Indian wrestlers have always been doing uh, the and what the they call namaskar, okay. dandas. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Dandas and namaskars. Yeah. yeah. So, from the physical culture of modern yoga asana culture, derives a lot from physical culture of wrestling, and that mm. goes goes back hundreds of years. Mm. I would yeah. say that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in fact, we have a very uh, important saint in India called Samartha Ramdas from the 1600s, and he. Uh, used to inspire people. He was a self-realized yogi, mm. but he used to inspire people by his uh, words of uh, physical culture, like, you know, gain strength. Because that was that was a time when uh, the the West, or at least the whole of India, actually, was fighting against invaders. Right. So yes, I think I mean this this line of thinking has been there certainly in the in the eighteen nineteen hundreds quite strongly to, to make a nation strong. Build yeah. them up not only culturally with the asana with the yoga, but also 
physically with the uh, with the bodybuilding and, and you know yeah. someone like uh I mean, you know, and there's many people like, I mean, Ramesh Dalsakar, who I can think of as yes. well, was also, he was a famous bodybuilder, you know, I used to go see him. Yes, yes. I often reflect on, on him when I saw him at his age, you know, it's a tiny little man at that age, but you know, yes. when you see him when he's young, you go, he's a, he's a big bodybuilder, you know. And so, Actually, hey, my grand, my, one of my grandfathers, not like actual grandfather, but my yes. father's, father's cousin, he was contemporary with Ramesh Balsakar on the bodybuilding competitive scene so my father knew Ramesh Balsekar not in the capacity as a Advaitin but yes, as a yeah, bodybuilder yeah, so yeah, yeah. once when he was alive I had gone to Ramesh Balsekar's satsang and he asked me where did you go and I went I said Ramesh Balsekar he said oh the bodybuilder I said no the Vedantin <laughs> that's funny for anyone that, uh, that doesn't know um, Ramesh Balsekar I should have said is it was a it was a very famous a kind of Advaita Vedanta um how do we call him? Enlightened, I suppose, enlightened kind of being who used to teach yeah. from a suburb in Mumbai. And uh, yeah, I used to go see him and it was an amazing, amazing experience going to satsang yeah. with, with him. And, you know, so, uh, Ramesh, uh, sorry, Prashad is, is in Mumbai. So mm. he would have had the opportunity to uh, to go to go there and, you know, a number of occasions, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've just been once, it, but it just, was just, just went once. You, you went once. Yeah. You only, I, I would have gone every week if I'd been there. I, I really liked him. No, I, 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 I used to like him, but, yeah. you know, that time I was not so much into Advaita Vedanta and Neo Vedanta. So I went that's, to see him once and that, that's, that was it. I suppose this kind of like would segue into a, a, another question, which is obviously we've got physical culture, uh, you know, at the heart, kind of in, almost inseparable from spiritual culture, really. We're doing a holistic thing after all, right? We have the gym in, yeah. with, in, in, uh, in the heart of Greek philosophy that you know it's taught in the gym originally socrates teaches out of the gym right calls one of his books yeah. the gymnasium right um you know and there's a strong physical culture within the uh, yoga the modern yoga context right yeah um got any other observations to say ar- around asana and how maybe uh, even your, you know to start off with your own journey and how you became kind of interested in yoga asana outside bodybuilding and why that was the case um uh, yeah. I, and, in yeah. my head, asana and bodybuilding were no, never opposed to each other. Right. right. Never. I mean, I used to do my asana practice and go and lift big because yeah. I was competitive bodybuilder. Right. And even today, single most credit I give for in my life for me to move towards understanding of the mind or meditation I will give it to bodybuilding because uh, my gym was very, very simple gym, you know, very simple gym. And a lot of uh, poor guys used to come there to train with hardly any meals. Sometimes I, you know, I used to go with my gym partners post our workout and feed them. You know, they were from a really, really lower section, uh, income section of society. And I would see this 50 kilo guys lift you know, hundreds of kilos on leg press and bench press. And I'm like, wow, where is, where is their strength coming from? And even in my own training, you know, I would, I would see that I'm bench pressing 250, 275 at that age and that weight. So it was continuously niggling in my mind that where is my strength coming from? It cannot be mm. the body of this 18-year-old, 19-year-old boy. Mm. So where mm. is, what is the locus of my strength? And what mm. happens? Why does my mind completely go shut when I am under a 275, 300-pound bench press? Mm. So that kind of pushed me to explore the mind. So nat- that natural movement towards mental exploration happened, I would say, under a barbell yeah, rather yeah. than on the mat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you did seek out asana. At some point, you saw, you know, you saw the asana teachers to teach you yoga asana, right? I, I Yeah, I, I still do teach. I mean, I've mm. not stopped teaching asana. No, no, no. Until no, pre-pandemic days, I, I still what, teach. Given a chance, I will still teach. Mm, but. Mm, mm. What was the reason for you to get into yoga asana then, as opposed to just keep continuing with the with the weights? I I got into yoga asana because my mother put me in the school, but I never really thought that 
if I do yoga asana, I should stop bodybuilding. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, this is what I'm saying. For me, yoga asana was complete in itself and bodybuilding was what it was, you see. I never saw them as something different. Mm, mm -mm. So asana practice for me and bodybuilding was both, both of these physical practices was me an entry into my mind, Mm. you see. So they were always, for some reason, perhaps I was taught it that way, the asana was is not purely physical stuff. It is, it's an entry level journey or it's an entry gate to the deeper explorations of the mind. Mm. So I used both. I used both. Yeah. I, I suppose I could reframe the question maybe in a, in a clearer manner. It, are they the same thing? Can you do the same thing that you're doing in yoga asana in the weights? Is it simply a concentration of the mind or is there anything energetic particularly in the yoga asana and people you know like to try and trace the roots to something involving a more tantric exploration of the body you know using the breath and the unders in a certain manner to to do something yeah. a little bit more complicated than simply in the patanjali an idea of mind stability or, or mind focus you know is there anything else going on see you in uh, asana <clears throat> if we look at gheran samhita the reason why asana is done according to Gheran Samhita is stability, sthirata. And I see the same stability coming from weight training, resistance training. Yeah. Of course, a deeper practice of asana will move you into the deeper recesses of mind moving through the nadis and prana. If you apply bandha and all that, that will happen. That I explored also once I quit competitive bodybuilding. So you see, so when I quit competitive bodybuilding, my my focus on lifting big was less. And I spent more time on exploring the subtle elements of physical culture through asana. Mm. Mm. So if you ask me, none of the physical modalities even dance, though I don't dance, uh, any physical modality can be channeled towards exploration of the mind. Mm. And I have always looked at it that way. For me, asana was never about stretching. It was never about getting into the posture. For me, it was always about what happens when I'm moving from point A to point B in a particular posture. It was always like that. Perhaps that was how I was taught. And that's why I took the same orientation into bodybuilding. Yeah, so I was not just lifting big. I was watching myself, what what is happening in my mind when I am lifting big. So there was always, a, you know, observer, as we say, behind yeah. the activities that I did. So would, would you say that's your approach to asana I mean, what is your approach to asana why are you teaching it and, and how do you qualify the asana in relation to anything other you know, how does the asana fit in into you as a gateway or uh, as part of a bigger picture my my orientation of teaching asana is uh, has matured to looking at asana as number one bringing the awareness into the physical body because you know People in our times are too distracted. The awareness is very much outside of not, of the body. It's not even in the body, you know. So asana can, asana can be a beautiful modality to bring the distracted, scattered awareness into the body. Mm. You know, at least at the surface level, at least at the muscle level. Once it is there, then shutting your eyes and... You know, the whole proprioceptive uh, aspect, tapping into the deeper proprioceptive aspect mm. where you are not uh, ruled by this is how the posture should be and this is how, uh, you know, the alignment should be. Okay. After a while, the posture becomes an inner journey. And for me, in fact, next month I am conducting a workshop about it. How can asana become a spiritual journey. 
So for me, it is it is like this for now. Mm. I look at asana as a gateway, not only into my muscle but also into my mind. Can you speak a little bit more on that journey, or is it is it beyond words? Or can you kind of qualify what what is it you're journeying in towards? If you're you're looking at it as a proprioception, yeah, fair enough. And then okay, and, so from from, from neurological then, level, it is yeah. proprioception. Yeah, yeah. but. When you shut your eyes and when your awareness seeps deeper in the asana, you open your awareness to the subtle anatomy. You can actually see your nadis. You can actually see your nadis. You can feel your nadis. And if if you have proper regulation on your breath. I'm not even saying prana, breath. And you know how to apply the bandhas. You can you can literally be like a traffic police modulating the flow of prana from this nadi to that nadi. You know, before the signal, sometimes you have these traffic police, they'll do like this, and the prana will go like this, stop, and then like this, prana will go like this. You can actually... It's called prana nirodha or prana, you know, sanchalan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can, through physical movement, you know, it's like uh, I have a bottle of water. Yeah, If I, this is a water of water with water in it. Now, if I move the bottle, the water will move too. Yes. So if I move the body through asana, then I can literally shake the prana inside my physical body. And that pranic modulation later on helps to become steady in dhyana. So it's not uh, when you regulate your prana at the nadi level, it's not just mm-hmm. for, yeah. that's not only the sake. Yes. The, yes, the, the real that. reason is, yeah, yeah. The real reason is to regulate the prana in such a way that when you sit for your dhyana, there is absolutely, you know, all all highways and all the roads are moving properly. The traffic is moving properly. There's no congestion in any roundabout, nowhere like that. Giving a traffic analogy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I was going to ask you, um, you spoke really nicely on previous podcasts I've listened to about the aims of yoga and defining what is and what isn't yoga. And, and also in the current uh, scheme of things when almost anything can be called yoga anymore, pretty much. Um, yeah. So try to try and you know, and, and if you if you say it can't be, then you're going to get into trouble. Well, I that helps me in my life, so uh, you know we can call that yoga. You know, how could you deny that uh, that uh, we can't call things that are helpful yoga? But I, you know, from my perspective, and I know from your perspective, uh, there is a classical definition of yoga, um, which um, I'd like to hear you uh, speak speak a little to. The. The classical definition that I work with, Adam, is yoga is release from your attachment to suffering. It's a definition given in Bhagavad Gita chapter 6. And there can be no simpler definition of yoga than this. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Chitta Vritti, Nirodha and all are fine. But they are, uh, they are uh, what you call um, activity goals. The real ultimate goal of yoga is what? Release from suffering. The whole Sankhya system, the whole Patanjali system is set for what? For release of suffering. So I work from this fundamental uh, definition. And then there could are that, working definitions, like shut the mind. Could and that be, yes. Could that, I mean, that definition is, is, could be quite low aiming though, in as much as it could be simply a pragmatic wish for more comfort in the world is it can we take it like that you know release from suffering being simply regulating your nervous system people are quite into this these days i regulate my nervous system with yoga therefore yoga is a release. you know i'm doing yoga because yoga is a release from suffering and i'm experiencing more comfort on a daily level on a material level therefore i'm doing yoga yeah so the answer of <laughs> the answer to this question is exactly the first chapter first verse of sankhya karika the main one of the main books of sankhya philosophy 
so it says we are we are giving sankhya philosophy for removal of suffering so then the counter question is oh but there are already methods of suffering available uh, methods of release of suffering are mm, mm, mm. so then he says yes but they are not permanent methods mm. so what the the system that we are giving you or the model that we are giving you is a permanent model so so the the if you look at the hierarchy of the approach it is we are suffering and uh, we have we are suffering at the level of the mind which translates into suffering at the level of the body therefore bring the mind and body in harmony and we will be released in suffering mm. so i work on this basic definition uh, of course there are other definitions like union with god and this and that but i like to work with a very simple definition to accommodate as many diverse people as possible yes very sensible but i mean how far can you go can you, i mean anything that points towards that can we include that in yoga or does it have to be more classic classically based as you were mentioning the you know the fairly you know well known framework of ashtanga patanjali ashtanga yoga you know you've got your eight limbs there right and i mean can we call you know can we call include as you mentioned including chinese acupuncture in the in a yoga you know is that can that be yoga as well and some shamanic shamanic okay, so, journey can that be yoga as well can we bring yeah, that all into the into the frying pan and yeah. mash it up yeah so look uh different regions have different geographies have given their own ways of spiritual development the spiritual systems or models or developmental approach that comes from indian subcontinent is yoga yeah that's why yoga is a generic term there is yoga in buddhism there's yoga in jainism there's yoga in sikhism there's yoga in hinduism so if you really look at yoga yoga comes from that geographical area of indian subcontinent mm-hmm. so spiritual evolutionary methods methods to release from suffering i mean methods to regulate the mind all these things that come from the region of indian subcontinent can be called yoga yeah uh so in my work i work with the definition of release from suffering and then i use methodologies that come purely from this geography this is i'm very specific about it i am not going to take traditional chinese medicine and call it yoga i won't it for me it's not fair for me it's though technically i can say yes that is also releasing mm. suffering mm. but then i would also eat a bar of chocolate or eat ice cream and call it yoga it's not fair like that you know we have to honor the tradition same way i would not go to uh, china and practice daoism and then call it yoga i would not do that mm. you know you know like like bread i give this example usually every region has bread but doesn't mean i go to middle east and eat their bread and call it chapati or paratha right paratha comes from a certain geography pita bread comes from a certain geography so yeah ultimately it is bread but then mm. we need to honor the paratha we need to honor the chapati mm. Mm-hmm. we need to honor the pita mm. otherwise tomorrow there will be no you know pita will be chapati and chapati will be paratha and you know mm-hmm. that's not fair at least for mm-hmm. acknowledging mm-hmm. the roots acknowledging the basic orientation is important you know mm-hmm. it's not just the roots also every tradition comes from a certain context certain a uh, preconceived notion some certain fundamental beliefs like like the whole if you look at the entire indian subcontinent that i talked about everybody believes in uh, uh you know karma theory mm. like so the buddhists don't believe in uh, self but they believe in karma theory uh, yeah a, a lasting self for in that matter so or cyclic nature of time you know so all these 
all every spirituality not just yogic spirituality every spirituality from all regions of the world have to be interpreted in context and taught in yeah. context i think it's a, you know it's increasingly 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 given a lot of attention this idea of cultural appropriation these days and you know and taking yoga out of context um do you feel that the the way that yoga is taken in india um, is still different to what you see outside do you think there's a base understanding of a, a different approach that comes as you mentioned from a certain upbringing that you may have had and a certain kind of ways that you would have understood or taken it differently where we see yoga these days uh, purely in the west from from an asana perspective and asked about yoga philosophy i would suggest that most people i would not well i might like to hear their answers it might be entertaining you know like but, you know because there's probably very little understanding of where it comes from or you know but can yeah. i suppose the question is is that okay you know can we just do yoga to the degree that it will kind of sort us out you mentioned if you're sitting and breathing and focusing then the nadis are doing something and it's producing a further exploration that will, will, will having started the seed will will fructify will grow you know or, or is there a need to contextualize this more clearly and firmly within the source and the whole of of what yoga is as a seeker as a practitioner no but as a professional yes huh? in india there have been illiterate yogis who cannot read and write who have sat quietly and reached heights of spiritual evolution they never read any theory they never read any upanishad nothing mm-hmm. but it's just that the natural soul impulse put them on this journey and they just went with it mm. yeah and later on perhaps you know they got the context and you know things like that so there is a certain uh, spiritual impulse that drives you on the spiritual path to spiritual evolution even if you don't know the theory mm. you know like like some uh, ethical philosophers would say that the goodness is always there in a human you don't have to be told uh to be empathetic towards somebody who is suffering it comes naturally like that but if one is a teacher if somebody calls himself or herself a professional teacher then they better know how to put things in context mm. yeah it's like another example would be you know in in some places in india and i'm sure also sure you know in few hundred years ago you just jumped into the pool or not pool a river or a pond and you know moved your hands and learned how to swim but if if you are going to compete then you have to know the breast stroke and but- butterfly stroke and the ergonomics right i mean if you want you can just jump into a pond and you know know how to float on water so it's like say i've seen but i've seen people try that in india and it doesn't necessarily work out well you know i've seen them jump in yeah. you know and they've had to be rescued at some point they don't know how to swim yes. i've seen yes. just jump into the pool yes as far as i can't swim they just think you like you know yeah. oh i'll just work it out there when i'm in there <laughs> yeah 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 so this anyway. is where the, the theoretical knowledge is essential mm-hmm. uh if one is going to teach it and then then that knowledge is essential to be taught in context mm. with consideration to the history to the culture in in a complete senses mm. like for example if you are a teacher and even if you are teaching only asana it is responsible on your part as a teacher to tell people that look yoga has yoga is huge yoga has many modalities but i am teaching you asana which is a part of a bigger picture so you don't just just replace the word asana with yoga and teach you know so i see that is also happening in india you know as they call it there's a terms in sociology called as reverse pizza effect yes yeah so i see that and that's why i always make the difference yoga and yoga in india when people say i do yoga they mean asana mm-hmm. you know and yoga you know because the end 
this is a little you know the pronunciation yes the, okay okay so yeah, they take the, the western pronunciation of yoga yeah because oh, okay, in sanskrit okay. we have two yeah, yoga, sounds yeah, yeah, a yeah, and yeah. a mm-hmm. so the yoga the end is yoga a small a yeah and english a could be a or a you yeah, see right. so many yeah. people y o g a becomes yoga instead of yoga so people will refer to it like that they could yeah like right you, you hear that yeah, yeah even in india many people say oh are you a yoga teacher right right yeah. and then you know and when they, they say think... yoga teacher they will mean that you are teaching asana or something okay okay so the reverse reverse pizza effect is happening we too have classes to develop uh, good uh, shoulders and arms with I mean, asana I mean, you know, for shoulders and all that I guess the obvious question I'd ask you, I mean, you know, how have you seen things changing in India since you were growing up, you know, in terms of the approach to yoga? Can you say anything about that at all other other than the obvious that, you know, people are obviously using it more cosmetically and as a more of a fitness regime? Is there anything else that you could add to that? Uh, in the popular yoga, in the popular culture in India, there's no difference between yoga of the West and yoga of India anymore. It's right. the same. Mm. it's the same the same uh, because of social media and every, everybody's uh, eager to hop on to the trends due to fomo you know so if something starts in the west or wherever immediately it's it's taken here so like from a popular culture from a pop culture point of view there's no you know there were a uh, few beer yoga workshops also have been conducted in india a few years ago so you know it's gone to that level too yes but yeah, still yeah. i would say like like i told you about my father and my mother they were in all practical senses uh, yoga yogic seekers without even knowing that they are yogis mm. yeah so for me yoga is a much broader term if somebody is living in faith and deeper devotion and surrender i will call them a yogi mm, mm. bhakti yogi like the definition in uh, bhagavad gita yeah if somebody is uh, just being a good person uh, uh, following their day to day routines and you know uh, taking care of their things they would fall into the zone of karma yogis you know so my definition of yoga is broad is inclusive and that's how it was in ancient times mm. you know though they may not have called it yoga but still but i don't know how much experience you've got with the west but i i've often got this um impression that the one the exclusive taking of asana in the west is because there's not any anything else that's framed around it and I, i'm kind of assuming in my experience of, of spending time in india that most people understand that there's a number of practices in the day you know and consistently over their lives that that kind of freight give a framework to to living right and with a westerner generally there's no there's no framework outside the asana practice so the asana practice yeah. becomes tantamount to everything you know because there's no other context and i, I mean i'm from i don't know whether i'm generalizing to say that you know this this exclusivity to the asana practice is through a lack of other framework around what's happening i mean would you say would you agree with the fact that there's still yeah. even in modern india more more uh, opportunity to have a, a greater context absolutely of, you are okay. you are absolutely on point on this because somewhere yoga went to the west or became popular in the west as a physical modality and once after physical modality then what i remember few few years ago i was doing a workshop and Uh, one participant came and said i'm a senior teacher you know i've been teaching for last 20 years i said great you know and after my workshop she just came to me crying and i did not say anything extra you know i just told them about basic spiritual basis of what we do all the practices and she came to me crying and she said i've been teaching yoga for 20 years why no one told this to me why no one told this to me and then suddenly she was all uh, angry about her on her teachers and all that and i said you don't have to be angry on your teachers they taught you what they taught you 
But now that you know, you know, she was like, I missed out on last 20 years. If I knew this broader perspective, I could have started off early. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have had an edge. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so ends. Yeah. yeah, so yes, yeah. you are absolutely on point. Because yeah. in India, whichever yoga you practice, karma yoga, you see Bhagavad Gita, karma yoga, chapter 3, 4, 5, there's a complete structure. Bhakti yoga, the whole bhakti lineage since last 1500 years is a complete structure. So the West is picking it up in patches. I'll tell you how. In last 10 years, Adam, you've been in the industry industry since a long time. So you know this whole community narrative just started in last 8-10 years, right? Let's have a community and then circles and, you know, sangha and all this has become popular in just last one decade. But if you look traditionally, I just put up a post yesterday on my Instagram about women's circles have been happening in India mm. for hundreds of years. Absolutely. Not to put down the current women's circle, but this is exactly on point of what you were saying. That no ma- in, in Indic tradition, you enter a certain yogic path and then suddenly there is a support of the guru, support of the sangha. You have the required scriptures. You have the required temples. So there is an entire system that holds you on your path. And you always feel supported. There'll, there'll be no, okay, I've mastered these difficult asanas. Now what do I do? Okay, I can hold my breath for four minutes. Now what? No. Yeah, you will find your teacher, you'll find your, as they say, you know, guru bandhus or, you know, fellow, fellow guru disciples. Yeah. And then you move Goodbye. like a tribe, yeah. as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do, you, what do you say? What do you say the role of a teacher is then, and and is the teacher a guru? I mean, do you, I mean, you, did you teach your? Did you relate to your teachers as a guru? Um, what, do you, what do you think about the role of the, the role of the modern teacher, and and can we still have gurus? Is it is it still something that we can, you know, is it a practical and sensible? That's a huge topic, but <clears throat> it's a very very valid topic. Uh, mm. There are teachers, and then there are gurus. Yeah, like in India, there are six, seven layers of teacher, like like Acharya. Acharya will just teach you. Yeah. Okay, a guru may not teach you. Mm. So, a guru means a teacher. Like, for example, in when we went to school, we used to call our class teacher a guru. So, mm. in India, it's, yeah, it doesn't always have to be spiritual. Like, uh, somebody's music teacher is their guru. Mm. Somebody's art teacher will be their guru. So in India, it just becomes a part of the culture. You know, guru is not a term uh, reserved specifically only for a spiritual teacher, per se. Uh, So there are different levels of teachers. Some teachers will just teach you theoretically and not help you at all. Some teachers may not teach you, but guide you. Some teachers will guide you, but not give you your sadhana, your practice. Some teachers will give you your practice, but not give a support system. Mm. So it really depends on what kind of teacher you meet. But if you ask me personally, I really feel it is important to find your teacher, your teacher. Okay. Uh, Sometimes not even for the knowledge that the teacher gives, but for a support system. I, if you ask me, I feel the, the role of the teacher is more about offering a support system than disseminating knowledge. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So mm. I, mm. I feel, perhaps I'm old-fashioned, but I feel that you need a teacher and after a while you need a guru. You know, it's like now, like in, in the most common senses, like nowadays, many people have therapists and it's, it's great, you know. So what does, in, in the Indian context, you would call a therapist your guru. Why? Right. Because, yeah, the therapist may not teach you, but it's guiding you, holding hands through the difficulties of your life. Yeah. There are so many gurus in India who don't teach anything, nothing, but they have all the answers, okay. 
So this is, they have the answers to your existential questions, but they may not sit, okay, chapter number one, they will not start like that. So I feel that we all need teachers or gurus, but the gurus and teachers will come. It's not a one way street. Mm. You, know, you have to, you call the guru according to your merit and your capability. So it's, mm. it's a two way street. It's not a one, a guru disciple relationship is not a one way street. It's yes, always yes, 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 yeah. I mean, along those lines, how do you assess? You mentioned the importance a number of times. In fact, I've heard you say this about finding the teacher that's right for you. Yeah, that's a really tricky thing. How how do you assess? How do you assess the teacher? How do you find by trial and error, Adam? Right, simply by, by, by going going around and, and seeing by resonance. going around, by failing, yeah. by rejecting, by being rejected. It's exactly <laughs> like. How do you find your life partner? It's exactly like that. So you need to put some effort into it. You don't just settle on the person. You have to put an effort. And the reason I gave an example of life partner, somebody you want to grow old with. Why? Because it's a lasting commitment. Right. You see, you can, it's like that. That that of commitment is important. That's how it should be, right? Ideally, that's how it should be. Necessarily speaking to the current um, zeitgeist where people will say i have many teachers i you know i who's your teacher in yoga well i have this person and this person and this person and you know they taught me this right if you look at a bio a yoga teacher bio currently it's like yeah, well, i right. was taught you know it's like 10 different teachers mentioned there right see it's like this adam um for all for common cold you can go to any general practitioner you see but when you have a surgery to be done on your body, you will look for a good surgeon. Mm. You see? And if you have a life-threatening disease, you will go to any corner of the world to be healed by that doctor. You see? So, it's the depth of your awareness of how tightly you're stuck in Avidya. Yeah, the depth of your understanding of what, what kind of trouble you're in or yeah. how much you think you are. I mean, along those lines, I, I, you mentioned the, I, I liked it, the, uh, the release of suffering being a very sensible and reasonable definition of, of yoga. I, that, that's the aim. So what, and you mentioned a little bit about methodology. So can you just kind of like talk a little bit more about, you know, methodologies towards that and, and uh, yeah, and how that, that trans kind of qualify that term a little bit more, you know? What, what are we doing? Um, how, how do we do that? And how do we, you know, obviously Patanjali is looking at restraint of the senses. Is this, I mean, you're talking about um, going off into the, uh, I don't know where you're going. I, I was going to say Himalayas, but I'm, you know, silence. wherever you're going. Yeah, in silence, from, in Mourner for a number of months. I mean, you know, how, what kind of modalities are, are you suggesting or are you teaching towards this uh, end of suffering? How's your journey been with this? Yeah. As it, as a, uh... Okay, as a practitioner, my journey is focused on two things, silence and surrender. As a teacher, my journey is focused on, uh, my teaching is focused on simplification, deepening of faith, and creation of patience. Okay, now coming to my own movement, my own growth, silence and surrender. I, I went to 100 places and I finally deducted that this is these two things is what I need now in my life. And these two things are enough. They are enough for me. You know, so the whole focus for my spirituality is cultivating silence, not just by shutting doors and windows, but ultimately the silence is noble silence of the mind. How my mind stays quiet, stays centered, stays uh, regulated in different circumstances that I navigate. And surrender. Surrender for me is an extremely important component of my own spirituality. 
most important. Yeah, it was about faith ten years ago, but now I see that my focus on yeah. faith is moving more into surrender. How is that different then? Faith mm. matures into surrender. Okay. Yeah. So the usual the visual analogy I give is mm. children sitting in the back seat of the car, and parents are driving them to vacation. Kids don't care where they are going, when they will reach, how how expensive the vacation is, which hotel they will stay at. The kids just want to have fun. Yeah, they are going on vacation. They are enjoying. They don't have to drive. They don't have to pay the gas bills. Nothing is going out of their pocket. For me, that is the mindset of a yogi who has surrendered. I'm not saying I have surrendered, but that's an attempt. It's an attempt. You know, no matter how hard the knocks of life knock me down, I want to get up and keep moving. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that how does that bear out in daily life? And this idea of surrender bear out yeah. in daily life? Yeah, yeah. You learn from difficulties, and you are grateful for the positives and you learn from the negatives and you are humbled by both positives and negatives mm. and that's how you move on and there's not life is very simple adam but our mind is very complicated and why is the, the surrender idea... you, still, you still haven't said why the surrender is different to faith which i'm kind of interested in as well how, <laughs> because... how is faith mature and surrender i like this um Faith is basically belief in something or someone. Yeah, faith is belief in something or someone, and surrender is literally surrender. I mean, that's a beautiful word. Is it? It's not. It's a dropping, dropping your so-called free will based on the strength of that belief. Yeah, that's why I said faith matures into surrender. The belief in something. Let's say I believe in Shiva. Let's say, okay, an example. My faith in Shiva increases, 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 increases so much that after a while, Shiva, I'm yours. My life is yours. Whatever you give me is yours. Whatever you take from me is yours. I don't care. I just want to be with you in my mind and my heart. Mm. This is how the bhaktas live. This is how mm. the uh, they will so always say. Is there a, a religious kind of feeling to the surrender? Then it, it could be religious for you. If, uh, for you, it, it, does it, for does me, it, yeah. Um, depends, Adam. How you define religion? Mm. You know, mm. yeah. But for me, my whole and soul is my guru, and then. My surrender is to my guru. I'm not much into uh, gods and deities and icons. Right. Yeah, and I keep it simple. Yeah. I yeah. really, really try to keep it simple. Yeah. And that's it, really. That's it. You know, so whatever happens, like the Krishna Bhaktas would say that whatever happens is Krishna's will. Whatever happens in my life is Krishna's will. Yeah. yeah. So there's no strife. There's, you do what you have to. Okay. It's yeah. not like you give up everything. Yeah, yeah. Does the surrender necessarily predicate the fact that you have to have a kind of a non-material view of life? You have, does, does surrender yes. necessarily imply that life has to be transcendental? Right? Because, I, you know, I mean, I, I tried as much yes. as I can to kind of read, a, to kind of allow yoga to be a, a belief system that doesn't, that doesn't need the, the, uh, the belief of reincarnation. It doesn't really function unless there's another world, unless there's unless there's more than one life. Really, it doesn't really yeah. work out properly. Yeah, right. But you don't have to. Uh, yeah, it is predicated upon what you said. But hmm. you don't have to. Uh, our one single life is complicated enough to hmm. include uh, multiple past lives in it. Now, if I look at my infancy, it's a life cycle in itself. If I look at my hmm. teenage, it's a life cycle in itself. Literally, I'm not the same person 
that went to my first yoga class at the age of nine. I'm literally mm. not hardly oh, half percent of me is the same, you know. So it, re- yeah, I mean, believing in uh, the whole transmigration of soul and everything will put a lot of things in context. But I would not say I have explained the theory of karmas to people who don't believe in past life and don't want to believe in next life and don't want mm. to believe in circularity of time. It doesn't have to be that way. It just see the what is our project as yogis? What is our project as yogis? It's simple. Calm that mind down. If yoga, traditional yoga has to be summarized in one single sentence, that would be calm down that mind. Calm down that mind in every situation. Patanjali calls it ekagrachit. Only when the mind is calm, quiet and centered, you will know the transcendental aspect of you. I still, I I kind of still think that the resolution has to lie elsewhere, like in the Gita, right? The resolution that Krishna offers is not like, well, you'll get, you know, you can get involved in this war, Arjuna, and and it'll work out because it's a civil war. Like it's never going to work out. And it's a metaphor for, you know, for the kind of, untractability of, of material life right like you're in you're ensconced in the gunas right like it material life can in, in the yoga parlance in yoga terms yeah. can never be can never be resolved adequately you know no in, right in this material way. life will never yeah. be resolved because it is not supposed to be resolved material life uh, you know that's why there was a philosopher called kierkegaard Soren Kierkegaard and his whole philosophy is called philosophy of despair. You know, it's a, it was a, he was one of the birthing fathers of existentialism. The same, Krishna says the same thing. Krishna calls the world, this material world, as anitya. Anitya means uncertain. And because it is uncertain, it will always trigger us. Because in the depths of our heart and our mind, what do we need? We need some stability. We need some assurance. We need some, some, some security. You know, the whole, the whole pandemic, the, this thing, this term called VUCA, V-U-C-A came up. You know, VUCA, you know, uh, volatile, uncertain, you know, there's a, it's a I mnemonic. Right, okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. Just yeah. Google it, VUCA world, V-U-C-A, okay? <laughs> and VUCA means volatile and uncertain, you know? So yes, the world, yeah. the material world is uncertain because nothing is fixed. Mm. Nothing is nothing is assured. But our human mind is, at the base of it, highly anxious. So internally, it's anxiety. Externally, it's uncertainty. So if you look at a human person, that poor human person, all of us included, is an, uh, is an anxious nervous system trying mm. to grapple through an uncertain life. You see how difficult that task is. I think that the, the person just was trying to recognize the consistency because the consistency is inside, right? And the trouble yes. is if... The, if, if if we weren't consistent internally, then it wouldn't be a problem. But there's like, there's two different states going on. One is the ex- outside world that's inconsistent. And one is the inside world that's always consistent. And there's no harmony between the two, right? So we're just looking inside for world means which word? I think the, the sense of ultimate self, the sense of consciousness is always the same. It's not changing. Ultimate self is not at all an issue. You see, ultimate self, according to the yogic philosophy, is never disturbed. Ultimate self is not an issue. It's always perfect. We are not wanting to become the ultimate self. We are already it. Mm. We, but we're looking for outside. Main... The trouble is looking for outside. Yes. You never find it. You never find it outside. Yeah, because it is so so thickly enveloped by our uh, avidya. Uh, we are so caught up with the mind that uh, 
that you know it's like now if somebody you know we are talking and suddenly there's some music starts playing behind you you will not be able to hear me it's exactly that mm. you know and that's why in bhagavad gita chapter number 5 krishna says that avidya is because you know adnyanena avrutam dnyanam tena muhyati jantava means the adnyana the non knowledge has enveloped literally enveloped us and because of that we are deluded that's mm. it so it's just about i mean sounds simple and <laughs> takes lifetimes but just about literally uh, pulling away the curtain and just looking that it was always bright outside of you it was always bright sun was always shining but we chose to sit inside our house with curtains drawn and that's why surrender here you know dropping mm. and simplification this is what is my conclusion till now that's it drop trust just try to uncomplicate life that's why my focus in the last one one and a half years is to unyoga <laughs> unyoga mm. myself and my students and as much as possible you know because what happens is in a way our spiritual journey is about coming out from all the identities but then we realize that yoga teacher is one very very important identity that we were mm. stuck in mm. and the relationship of the student to that teacher not only for yes. the teacher but also for the student to kind of contextualize their journey in relationship to that other yes I, yes finally um prashad out kind of like to ask you how you bring that kind of into your classes i suppose like if someone's there like you know for, for our listeners as well if someone's kind of there just thinking well I, i'm doing this asana you know and it's this makes me calm it makes me relaxed and i really like it you know and i don't really know i don't really like to read much you know for many people these days they don't really want to read any books you know they don't really you know i can't understand that yoga sutras very well you know um very complicated how would you um what do you recommend like what what kind of is it what kind of gateways do you recommend for people to kind of bring some further exploration or, or deeper aspects to to their daily uh, asana it's going to be asana generally speaking practices uh specifically with asana practice i would suggest that in number one focus on your breath more than your posture okay yeah. let your breath be the guide to how deep you should go in the posture not your muscle because our our brain talks to us through our breath so this is where the flip comes yeah don't 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 look at the muscle don't look at the shape don't look at how this po- posture my, how my teacher did this posture no be with your breath and allow the muscle to stretch itself wherever it goes even neurologically that will help you more to relax in the muscle rather than uh, frantically wanting to enter into a posture hmm this is number 1 number 2 patience i always during while teaching asana i always tell the students that look this is the only body you will have so just be patient yeah i mean just because you can do this posture so fantastically doesn't mean you become a good human this is just a physical thing your muscles have been uh limited for a long time so give it time mm. give it time you sit for 8 an hour 8 hours at your work on a chair now you cannot uh, uh come to my class and feel like a person who's made up of play doh so somewhere also yeah i think you know in today's uh, performative culture of asana mm. teacher has more responsibility of assuring than teaching the teacher has more role to play uh, it's okay you know you are there no problem mm. we will reach mm. there by march you don't have to reach there today yeah because now if the teacher is like that's it come on you by now you should have reached the toes you know we are literally the students are malleable we are creating the students 
So I really feel the teacher's role, especially post-pandemic, where mm. almost let let's be honest, everybody has mental issues. Yeah, everybody has mental health issues. So who is coming to the class? It's not just the body. It's a body which is driven by a mind with mental health issues. So <laughs> I think somewhere post-pandemic, a teacher's role has changed a lot. It's not just about giving out instructions and observing. It mm. has become giving out instructions, assuring, supporting. So the teacher, in a way, has to develop qualities like being empathetic, mm. being considerate. Mm. The teacher themselves has, has to let go of all the preconditioned idea or the posture has to be like that. And mm. if I'm not in a posture like this, I'm not a good enough yogi. So it's really reworking from the side of the teacher and the student. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Nicely put. <laughs> I mean, especially as I've seen some quite kind of pedagogic and dictatorial kind of teaching methodology in, in India, you know, of the, yeah, of the pushing and the, and the forcing kind of type, you know, and, and in the West, we generally a little bit wrap ourselves up in cotton wool on the other side, a little bit too much, you know, sometimes, you know, this kind of, uh, but on the other side, I think uh, we've seen some pretty, pretty strict kind of uh, approaches in, in, in to, uh, to yoga and traditional Indian teaching. So, yeah, but kind of, not all, Adam. I mean, no, there are many schools. Is, yes, yes. There are many schools who don't really care about the depth of your asana. There are many mm. schools mm. and old schools. Yeah, they they are they do the asanas with the focus on the mind, not really the body. So, do you want just uh, for, out of interest, where uh, where are you doing your uh, your retreats? And and just to, to finish off now, I mean, do you want to say anything about these these retreats that you're doing every year? I will finally to, I will finally forward. start traveling from next year. Okay, because I've. You know, I used to teach in around 10, 12 countries every year, pre-pandemic. Yeah. But now, an Indian passport is not really a strong passport. So I have to restart standing in line and long waiting for visas and everything. Okay. So I'm looking, right now nothing is planned, but I'm looking for some travel in 2023. And I have focused more now since pre-pandemic days on something that I call meditation facilitator training, you know, to give a comprehensive idea of meditation and how we can go into it and be it. So I'll, I want to do some meditation facilitation trainings and I'll see how it goes. Nothing planned as yet. Okay. Well, all that remains is for me to say, thank you. It's been a wonderful chance thank to meet you, so you and, and talk to you. Um, and uh, please look at uh, Prashad's social media. It's really, really, Really great, uh, really some some very very um, good articles on there, and uh, we'll we'll link all the uh, all the links to Prashad and, and what he's doing below in the uh, on the YouTube and the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, thanks again, Prashad. Thank you Great so time. much. Thank you.